And so when I say that innovation brings promise or peril, what I'm really saying is that the technology itself is value neutral. It takes on the values and intentions of the people who use it. A few years ago, I got the opportunity to see our next guest speak in Washington, D.C. on technology and innovation. I'm really excited to have him join us on today's episode of Bring It In. Alec Ross is one of America's leading experts on innovation. Back in 2008, when a guy you might have heard the name of, uh, Barack Obama, was running for president, Ross played a key role in developing President Obama's technology and innovation plan. He then served as senior advisor for innovation to the Secretary of State, helping modernize the practice of diplomacy and advancing America's foreign policy interests. Alec is the author of the New York Times best-selling book, which I have in my hands right now, The Industries of the Future. Currently a distinguished visiting professor at the University of Bologna. His work helping lead technology policy for multiple presidential campaigns is part of the reason I wanted to talk to Alec, not just about his new book coming out, The Raging 2020s. The book proposes a new social contract to restore balance of power between government, citizens, and businesses. Head on over to Amazon, pick up The Raging 2020s. I already have. But also because the future of work has to include a conversation about the role of government, a conversation about how policy and private sector entrepreneurship work together to create an environment where all workers can level up and have opportunity. So I'm not going to give anything away on this one. We're going to roll right in. Let's bring it in. To share a little bit about yourself. Sure. I'm a, I'm a, an author and venture capitalist to sort of the, the father uh, the father to 26 startup CEOs right now in, in our portfolio who we're helping their companies grow and a professor. So I've got this sort of crazy portfolio lifestyle uh, where I live and work at the intersection of academia, entrepreneurship, innovation, and investing. And it's a, it's a bit of a portfolio life and portfolio work and um, incredibly rewarding. In your, in your bio, it talks about your work leading tech policy efforts for two presidential campaigns. Just yeah, want to ask personally, what's that like? Yeah, no, it was really something. You know, I, I started a company when I was in my 20s and, you know, grew it from being four knuckleheads in a basement into a pretty large and successful global organization. And one of the communities my company did a lot of work in was the was the neighborhood on the south side of Chicago where a then state senator named Barack Obama was working as a locally elected official. And I got to know him. And when he ran for the United States Senate, I helped him a little bit with that. And then when he ran for president, I ran technology policy for his presidential campaign. Um, so that sort of brought me from the life of entrepreneurship into the world of government. And you know, I worked for, for him and for Hillary Clinton for a total of six years. During all those years that I worked for, for um, Obama and Clinton, my role was really to figure out how can technology be something first in campaigns, but then in foreign policy to come up with new solutions to old problems. Um, we were wildly innovative at the time. The stuff that we did then uh, has been completely normalized since. But it was really, it was then, that was my sort of my entry from the world of an entrepreneur you know, managing a couple hundred 
folks working in the technology world to the application of technology in governance and into some broader contexts. What was the most surprising part? You know, the most surprising part of it, I think, was, you know, a lot of the time entrepreneurs and counting myself among them can sort of look their look down their nose at government and say, oh my gosh, you know, it's slow, it's ineffective, it's, you know, gosh, it gobbles up a lot of money. And the thing that surprised me most was, first of all, how important the work is, and secondly, how well the vast majority of it is done. I mean, my projects ranged everything from, uh, you know, restoring communications in rubble-held territory in eastern Libya during a revolution to you know, building a mobile network to help reduce sexual violence in the East Congo to, uh, you know, creating programs to help with disaster relief in Haiti. And the thing that really struck me first and foremost was when you, the difference between doing a good job and a bad job was a body count. You know, people literally lived or died based on the work that you did. And then again, in the second piece of it is the vast majority of the time, 90 plus percent of the time, the people doing this work do it extremely well. I have uh, in my hands right now your book, Industries of the Future, and it's Alec is pretty marked up, man. I, <laughs> I obliterated you. it uh, in a good way. <laughs> and uh, one of the things you say that uh, that grabbed my attention it was innovation brings both promise and peril. Do you recall maybe the, the background to that, that point? Sure. I mean, I think we've seen it. You know, I hate talking about politics for the most part, but I think we've seen it, for example, in politics where, you know, and let's take it outside of its American context for a second. Uh, we've seen how the Internet can be used um, to for persuasion. And, you know, it can be a very, very powerful force for education. So, for example, in my in the 26th, startups startups in my venture portfolio you know a lot of the leadership development um, is done especially now in times of covid online and so it's a great way to educate people it's a great way to move people to do things but the peril is that the same ways in which you can educate people for good can be used to misinform and manipulate people so i've seen in far too many authoritarian countries abroad examples of how an entire country with tens or hundreds of millions of people can be brainwashed. And one of the biggest mistakes I made, one of the one of my greatest intellectual errors, you know, if we were to go back 10 or 15 years ago, was that I thought that propaganda wouldn't work online. I thought that there was so much transparency online that you could just name and shame uh, uh, fake news or misinformation or manipulation or other such things. And lo and behold, I was completely wrong. Propaganda and misinformation uh, can proliferate quite easily online. And so when I say that innovation brings promise or peril, what I'm really saying is that the technology itself is value neutral. It's inanimate. It takes on the values and intentions of the people who use it. So it can be used to strengthen a Jeffersonian democracy and, or educate your workforce or it can be used um, to strengthen the goals of a, of a dictator. The technology itself is value neutral. As you, as you think about work 
I guess I want to throw this whole bag at you, if it's okay. As we think about work and we think about innovation and we think about the responsibility of uh, organizations and corporate leaders to invest in technology to keep their business going, but at the same time, not to maybe leave their people behind. What, what suggestions or what advice or what observations do you have in this moment? Yeah, so let's so to do some framing first. I do think that the the robotics, the robots of the cartoons and movies from the 1970s will be the reality of the 2020s. You know, the the power of artificial intelligence, machine learning and robotics, it's not a hypothetical based on a theoretical based on a maybe. What we've already seen is more labor displacement and substitution taking place because of automation, because of AI than it's taken place because of globalization. Unlike globalization, where you can see a job go from Baltimore to Bangalore, the loss of jobs to automation tends to be more, uh, more invisible and less keenly felt. Now, a lot of what we're seeing right now is, is that the jobs, more often than not, more often than not, are not just being taken over by software, software so much as they are enhancing the work of humans. So humans are working with the tools of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and robotics. So it's not purely substitutive. But to your question, Sam, you know, what is the responsibility of a leader? What are the responsibility of organizations to our humans in a world where the zeros and ones of computer code are, are doing more and more of our workforce? It's really, it's really focused on skills. It's really focused on development. Um, unfortunately, they're gonna, we are projected to have millions of manufacturing jobs in the United States that are going to go unfilled. And they're going to go unfilled, not because we lack for people with big, strong shoulders who can pick up boxes and move them from one place to another. No, those jobs have long since been automated. But the manufacturing jobs in the 2020s are those where humans are working with these technology tools. If you go into an Amazon factory, if you go into any advanced manufacturing center, what you're seeing is not a lot of people, not a lot of humans doing a, a lot of the kind of manual labor that we associated with, with manufacturing 50 or 70 years ago. The humans who are there may not have college degrees, but they still have training and technology. So the key for our employers, Sam, I think, is to make sure that we are doing the kind of continual leadership development and workforce development that sort of anticipates where the need is going to be in our workforces so that they can keep and continue to develop the existing employees that they have rather than firing and then looking to rehire people with an entirely different skill set. Yeah, the, and the other thing that you, you had talked about is knowledge spillovers. And just when you say that, it makes me wonder as communities, the responsibility organizations have in ensuring that the, the spillover that occurs, it might not have a direct impact on their organization, but you know, an employee who might work in one role for me today uh, might spill over into another role across the street from me uh, tomorrow and um, to find the sky, but we have to work more as a community, even given the amount of opportunity that innovation presents us. No, Sam, that's really well said. And the way that I think about it is in terms of the social contract. What is the relationship between a business and its broader community? So if you think about the social contract during the agricultural age, 
there was a multi-generational tie between the landowner uh, and the people who worked the land. Um, you know, so basically you, you know, people would work the land for 30 or 40 years and then their children would come in and work the land for 30 or 40 years. And then the grandchildren would come in and work the, the land for 30 or 40 years. And there was a sort of equilibrium ex that existed, though one form, one form of, in this case, labor was highly subservient to capital. Then what happened? Industrialization. And so in this case, it wasn't somebody sort of living on somebody else's land and working that land. In this case, labor went from farm to factory and from country to city. And the relationship between employer and employee changed. So factory workers, people would make decades long commitments to a given company, a given factory. But in exchange for that, what happened? The six day work week of the agricultural age became the five day work week of the industrial age. This was literally the creation of weekends. We got things like a minimum wage, a pension, so that yes, if you work in that factory for 30 years, at the end of those 30 years, you will get money that sustains you through your old age. Now that we're moving from a, an industrial economy into an increasingly technology-rich, knowledge-based economy, we need to rethink our social contract. What good is a pension if you're more likely to have 30 jobs in 30 years than one job and one employer in 30 years? So the very nature of a company's relationship to its community, a, a community's relationship to the companies within it is changing dramatically right now. And in the same way in which the early years of industrialization were a little bit messy. You know, that's when, that was the time of, you know, 11 year olds working in factories and losing fingers. This was the time of the Charles Dickens novels. But eventually we wrote, we rewrote our social contract so too with this difficult transition from an industrial economy into a technology-rich knowledge-based economy, it's a difficult transition and lots of people are raging. Lots of people are, are not finding their place in their way in that world, but ultimately what can sustain us is rethinking our systems and rewriting our social contract. You know, I, I got my pre-order in because September 14th, I believe, is the release of your next book, The Raging 2020s, which from the title uh, must, uh, I guess, be a little bit different from the last 20s we had. <laughs> and one of, the, one of the things, you know, as I was uh, right before I clicked on pre-order, uh, which I'm excited about, one line caught my attention in, your, um, in, the, in the description of the book, and it talks about you know, the lines between Walmart and the halls of Congress have grown razor thin. And it went on to talk about how billions of people are governed now more by corporations than governments. And um, I guess, give us a sneak peek. What are, what's, what are the, why'd you write the book and what are the big highlights to come? Oh, thank you. Thank you. First of all, thank you for pre-ordering the Raging 2020s. So look, our decade has gotten off to a little bit of a tough start, right? You know, we are a more divided country today than we've been since the Civil War. We are struggling with the lingering effects of a pandemic. There is sort of a lot of rage around us. How can we get our way out of it? How can we rewrite that social contract that I was talking about a little bit before? And so what a lot of what I write about in the raging 2020s is making capitalism work, is fig figuring out if you are working hard to create returns for your investors 
how can you do so in a way consistent with your business goals that also aligns with a set with a set of values um, that are going to benefit not just not just your shareholders but a broader set of your stakeholders, your customers, your clients, your employees, you, the 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 folks in the institutions in your supply chain. So I do believe that we are more governed by companies than we are by countries across a whole host of issues from from our healthcare to equity to labor rights and there's good and there's bad in that and so the raging 2020s really tries to give a guide of sorts to business leaders to help them navigate a really tricky decade where their employees have different demands where a lot of people coming to work seem almost damaged uh, by the circumstances that that are engulfing us right now, and so what it, what I'm trying to do with the the raging 2020s is is light a little path during a difficult time. I'm just sitting here nodding my head because it's exciting. I, you know, it, as an entrepreneur myself, it and have a lot of friends in um, the tech community who have started up, and many of us have you know fought through COVID and. Um, many have not been able to um, make it out the other side. Um, you know, it's it's it is a challenging moment for entrepreneurs and startups whose heart are is in the right place because you are um, in many ways not only trying to return value to venture capital, uh, but also trying to deliver value to your end customer and create a culture and a community with your team. It's a really challenging um, balance for many. No, it is. You know, this is, this is one of those really difficult times. It's much like the roaring 20s, much like the 1920s, where we were coming out of the First World War, which people forget created an enormous body count, millions of dead, and then the Spanish flu. So right after World War I, there was a pandemic that killed more people than have died during COVID uh, with a far smaller population. And then what happened? There was a remarkable decade, the roaring 20s. Um, and, you know, it ended, in a, it ended in different places depending on where you lived in the world. You know, Germany and Italy began the march toward fascism. The United States ended up in depression. It was a remarkable time, a product of the choices made during that decade. And so I feel like we're in a similar moment now where if this decade is going to conclude in a better place than it began, it's gonna be because of a series of choices we've made uh, now and in the very few years to come to sort of reset our trajectory a little bit. I'm excited for it. Uh and I, I look forward to it. Alec, I got one, one last question for you. The future of work is also one of those phrases that gets thrown around a lot today. Um, but, uh, and oftentimes it feels like it revolves around conversations about robotics only and, and not people. But I want to ask you, what is, what is your hope for the future of work? Yeah, my hope is that for the future for the future of work i do believe that in a world of increasingly powerful artificial intelligence machine learning and robotics that which makes us most human 
grows more important. And so I think about qualities like emotional intelligence and understanding of behavioral psychology, strong communication skills, interdisciplinary thinking and application of that thinking. What I hope is that the future of the world, uh, the future of work is, is we are in fact, that which makes us most human grows more important at work as opposed to our becoming more robotic. So if you rewind 150 years ago, Sam, uh, a lot of people succeeded or failed at work based on how robotic they were. How fast could you pick something? How quickly could you assemble something on a, on a factory assembly line? So humans were in many respects roboticized uh, during the industrial age. What I hope now is that our, ro our robots can really do a lot of the grunge work, close to all of the grunge work, and that which makes us most special our very humanity, our creativity, our understanding of, again, emotional intelligence, behavioral psychology, and, and things at the core of our humanity. I hope that that is what becomes most important in the workplaces of the future. Alec, thanks you for, thank you for taking time. You know, I thought that was a really powerful one, Jaime. What do you think? I learned a lot. You know, there's a bunch of takeaways, you know, one thing, Alex talking about the fact that you know jobs of the future are humans working alongside technology. I think that's a big one for us to understand. Alec also said this at the end about his hope for the future of work. And I think it's something that is important for entrepreneurs and leaders who structure jobs and structure work and think about engagement, think about uh, how uh, the nature of their businesses shift and evolve. Alex said his hope was the stuff that makes us human becomes more important. I think there's uh, no more important time to be thinking about that than now, especially when uh, there are some surveys in the market today that say as many as one in two American workers are looking to make a job switch uh, sometime before the end of 2021. Alec also said that today we're more governed by companies than we are by countries and gave his perspective. And, you know, I would encourage you to learn more about Alec's perspective on this. Uh, head on over to Amazon. You should definitely pick up his latest book, The Raging 2020s. Uh, I already have uh, Raging 2020s, Companies, Countries, People in the Fight for Our Future. Uh, as Alex said, the hope is to provide advice to business leaders in this moment. So go on over, pick up The Raging 2020s. And after you've done that, I'd also tell you to go over and pick up The Industries of the Future, which is still one of my top reads from Alec. So that's all we got for this episode of Bring It In. Uh, I, I would, I should probably say like, wait, you know, we got more episodes coming along here, but you can also go back and listen to old episodes, right, Jaime? We've got a lot of episodes. Oh, and by the way, it's September. So happy uh, Workforce Month. Happy Workforce Month. I think that's what it's called. Now back to work. Back to work.